Hare Krishna Maharaj. Thank you very much for joining once again for the Monks Podcast. Hare Krishna Prabhu. I'm happy to be here again. It's amongst wonderful. the monks. <laughs> to be amongst the monks. <laughs> amongst the monks. <laughs> Actually, you're giving me the opportunity to be amongst a monk, a senior monk. I think this is the longest series we have been having on the Monks Podcast. I've discussed various issues with different devotees, but it's been a consistent theme for meditation. So it's wonderful. And uh, we are going toward, I think, Krishna next time. This is today's Lord Ram. So, Today, I think, is Ram, no? Yes, Maharaj. Ram. Yeah. So, you know, on Lord Ram, actually, I grew up hearing stories of Ram. We had pictures of Ram in our homes. Right behind our childhood, we, right behind my home, there was a temple of Ram. So, in one sense, from a cultural connection with Lord Ram is more than with Lord Krishna. This is my upbringing. Uh-huh. And I've written some... Your, your upbringing was uh, which part of in India? Mostly Maharashtra. My parents were from Andhra, grandparents, but I was born and brought up in Maharashtra. So Which part? I lived in... I was born in the heartland of Maharashtra in a remote place called Chandrapur. I grew up over oh. there. That is, it is still considered to be like a rural or a tribal area almost. Then I came oh. to Nasik. So my youth was in Nasik. Then I came to study in Mumbai, in, in Pune for my engineering. And that's oh. where I was introduced to Krishna consciousness. So yeah. <laughs> in Chandrapur, I had a lot of exposure to Lord Ram because just behind our home, there was a Ram temple. So... So lot- you have Lord Ram in your blood. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, yeah, in, at least in my psyche, somewhere is there. Krishna, hopefully, by Krishna's mercy. Yeah, you've been so much blessed. I didn't, I didn't hear, I don't think I, I don't think I heard about Lord Rama until... I joined the devotees, which means I was 20, 21 years old. Oh. So uh, I'm, I'm a late starter. <laughs> oh, well, you can leaps and bounds that you're helping many others to start early now by your outreach. But were you from a more of religious or spiritual inclination, your background earlier, Maharaj? Yeah, there was a there was a strong religious orientation in Protestant Christian uh, tradition, um, and it's a bit complicated. Um, but I was uh, understanding that there's there's some higher reality from you know from very early. I would say. And uh, I had some kind of attraction, some vague attraction to to religious life and then spiritual life. And then in my early college days, I became attracted to yoga teachings. And then I heard about bhakti, bhakti yoga. 
And when I met devotees in Germany, they said, we practice bhakti yoga. And I immediately thought, aha, uh -huh, I think I've found what I'm looking for. <laughs> oh, amazing. If I'm not mistaken, you're from America, but you met devotees in Germany. I actually met devotees in America first, but I didn't... Um, I didn't interact with them. Uh, I saw them and heard them at my university. They would have kirtan every day in um, on the on the streets in the open area, just next, just next to the main entrance to the university park area. So they were definitely impressing me gradually at that time. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it was in Germany that I first uh, interacted with devotees. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, Shivananda Prabhu and Pritu Prabhu. They were pioneers in German Yatra back then. Yeah, I think that book. Okay. About in Germany, Prabhupada, I think, what is that book called? The Disciples in Germany, it's quite a... Yeah, Srila Prabhupada's Disciples in Germany. Yeah, right. Yes, Maharaj. So, so I thought of talking about Lord Ram from one perspective, but if you have something in mind, we can go along. Well, I thought we should uh, we should hear first uh, Sri Jayadev Goswami's oh yes beautiful prayer yeah yes yes <laughs> and then I thought we could go to also one of the prayers in the ninth canto, which is interesting because it gives benediction and it describes. Practically the whole pastime of the Lord's appearance, all in one verse. So let's start with uh, the Dashavatara Stotra. Vitarasi Dikshurane Dikpati Kamaniyam Dashamukamali Balim Ramaniyam Keshavadrita Ragupati Rupa Jaya Jagadisha Hari. And I have a translation here. You scattered in all directions, all ten directions, mm -hmm. the severed heads of Ravana as a beautiful offering to the deities of the various quarters, east, west, and so on. Oh, Keshava, you took the form of Rama. So it's interesting. Dasha Mukamali Balim Ramaniyam. His ten heads were offered, I think the literal meaning would be as Balidana, as, yes. as an offering to the uh, to the directional uh, divinities. <laughs> this is beautiful. 
So Maharaj, just a quick, I had this question and I have a particular understanding that I want to confirm from you. So generally when the Lord is glorified, so the glorification, especially in poetic form, need not necessarily be a literal truth, isn't it? Because as far as I have read in the Ramayana, it's not that his 10 heads were cut and sent in 10 directions. It's more like that his heart was shot. That's the Valmiki Ramayana version. And uh, the Pulfi Ramayana is that there was a, his life force was in his belly. His belly was shot. And he had the power yeah. to regenerate his head. So uh-huh. even if his heads were cut, they would reappear again. And I don't <laughs> think that after he was killed, after that, they would do anything to his corpse. And Ram was not a kind of person who would, uh, who would <laughs> deform or deface the corpse of a dead enemy. So, yeah. Well, this is kind of a bigger topic, especially in relation to Ram Leela. Uh, we can maybe talk more about it later, but uh, there are so many versions of yes. Ram Leela. And we can we can say, of course, we can say, well, the only really bona fide is Valmiki Ramayana. Um, yeah, we can discuss that. But I I I I like to think that uh, the Lord's pastimes are are unlimited, and so there can be variations. Oh, beautiful. And uh, the variations, of course, can also, one can invoke uh, kalpa beda nyaya, we can say in different kalpas, the variations appear. That would be one way, one way to say it. But let's, uh, let's now go to a verse in the Bhagavatam. Which verse is my right? Nine? Canto 9, chapter 10, verse 4. And I like to read the Sanskrit, if I may, because it's uh, it's one of the longer uh, meters. I don't remember. Shagdara, maybe. Yeah. So, Gurvarte Chattaraja Vyacharadanuvanam padma padyam priyaya panisparshaksham avyam mrijita patarujo yo harindranujavyam by rupyachur panakya priyaviraharash rushoro pita bruvrijimba trustab dear badha setu that takes more practice to chant properly. To keep the promise of his father intact, Lord Ramachandra immediately gave up the position of king and accompanied by his wife, Mother Sita, wandered from one forest to another on his lotus feet, which were so delicate that they were unable to bear even the touch of Sita's palms. The Lord was also accompanied by Hanuman, king of the monkeys, 
or by another monkey, Sugriva, and by his own younger brother, Lord Lakshmana, both of whom gave him relief from the fatigue of wandering in the forest. Having cut off the nose and ears of Shurpanaka, thus disfiguring her, the Lord was separated from Mother Sita. He therefore became angry, moving his eyebrows and thus frightening the ocean, who then allowed the Lord to construct a bridge to cross the ocean. Subsequently, the Lord entered the kingdom of Ravana to kill him like a fire devouring a forest. May that Supreme Lord, Ramachandra, give us all protection. So it's a prayer of benediction, which is also a quite an extensive description of the pastime with a few details which could also be discussed. Um, And it's interesting just to consider the Bhagavatam version of Ramalila. You know, the fact that it's... um, relative to, let's say, Valmiki Ramayana, it's extremely short. It's two chapters. And Shukadev Goswami in the beginning says to Maras Parikshit, I'm just going to give you a short summary because you already are familiar with the story. So it's assumed, one can say, not only that Maharaj Parikshit is familiar, but also any reader of the Bhagavatam is familiar. Similar to in the first canto, much of the first canto is a kind of uh, sequel to the Mahabharata with some overlap also of Uh, later portions of the Mahabharata, and of course, very much summarizing. But the assumption is that one is already familiar with the Mahabharata, and that's what gives uh, significance to the the Bhagavatam uh, sequel and summary, because one's already familiar with it, and now one gets you know, the particular perspective, which can also be considered a kind of commentary uh, to the Mahabharata. And now in the ninth canto, we can also take these two chapters as kind of commentary on uh, the Ramayana of Valmiki. That's an interesting point. But normally, I never thought of it as a commentary because... Isn't technically a commentary sent to be sent to be like a bigger than the original book, or mm-hmm. is it? I, I, my, my, not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, uh, Shridhar Swami's commentary on the Gita is often quite brief, for 
certain verses. For other verses, he elaborates more, um, but sometimes it's short. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I also thought about this. It's remarkably brief. And there are some, in some ways, Shukde Goswami is also presenting things from the perspective that is uh, most relevant for, say, Parikshit Maharaj. Most of the Bhagavatam, mm -hmm. they are pastimes which are focused on the idea of, say, renunciation of the world and attachment mm -hmm. to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one of the one of the things which first struck me as quite odd, but then as I read the mood of, try to understand the mood of the Bhagavatam, it uh, I appreciated a little bit more. I would like to get your understanding also. The Bhagavatam says that that in order to demonstrate how somebody who is attached to their their spouse, their wife gets suffers, the whole pastime mm -hmm. of uh, Ram being exiled happened. Yes, and Prabhupada mentioned that once. Um, in my memory, it was uh, in a talk, maybe it was a conversation in Hyderabad. And he was, as I remember, he was kind of chuckling about it. He said, what is, what is the uh, essential lesson of the Ramayana? The essential lesson is how much trouble it is to have a wife. <laughs> <laughs> so my understanding of that perspective is that also that it's from the, the Parikshit Maharaj has to be detached from he has renounced everything yeah. and focus on the Lord yeah. and in that sense that it is encouraging him to do that but uh, yes. you know, in India especially that idea of that means you know, just to teach something Ram let Sita get accused and he didn't come to her defense and he exiled her when she was pregnant. So it seems quite a questionable thing to do. So just to teach the lesson of detachment, Sita, Sita is made to suffer for no fault of hers. Uh, yeah. It does seem a little objectionable. So my understanding was <laughs> that that, uh, that is from the Bhagavatam's perspective of helping a person to become detached. A person who is in the position of Parishad Maharaj. But, uh, but uh, yeah, Shukadeva Goswami had a very specific task, um, which was to, as you point out, it was to help Maharaj Parikshit prepare <clears throat> prepare for the inevitable. Excuse me, which was going to happen very soon, uh, and so, as you say, renunciation was. Um, or it, it's, it's, you can say, a very dominant theme of the whole, the whole Bhagavatam. And therefore, in that theme, um, with that flavor, you can say, he's speaking these two chapters. But now I have a question. Why is it that he emphasizes in this verse we just read how delicate... Ram's feet are. They're so delicate. <laughs> He's wandering <laughs> in the forest. So delicate that they were unable to bear even the touch of Sita's palms. 
<laughs> it's almost an echo of what that comes in the 10th canto or we could not echo we could say a precursor of what they describe about krishna and the gopis and yeah anticipation yeah anticipation okay yeah. that's a good that's a good answer um because there are a lot of passages in the first nine cantos that are anticipating uh hinting at or somehow anticipating uh points or elements in the 10th canto yeah another thought i had it's also like, and because of that you can say it's it's hinting at uh the madhurya relationship between rama and sita isn't it yes definitely it's a uh, it's also maybe one way is that it's also to illustrate his renunciation that now if he was so used to comfort and then he accepted so much uh, so much uh, austerity and what uh, is the first word over there that he he did it because of is to honor the word of his father so yeah that's another way of looking at it and yeah. it's interesting but it's also interesting yeah. in this verse uh it's also interesting that correct me if i'm wrong but it says here that uh it was lord rama who disfigures shurpanaka um i was thinking it was lakshmana who does that yes it is i mean maybe you can say that uh, well, i think we discussed this thing of performative utterance that it is ram's instruction which did that so in that sense ram told lakshman to do that oh i see okay so and and then there's this emphasis on uh the interaction that rama has again still this verse between rama and the ocean um he becomes angry says he therefore become became angry um uh, because he was separated from mother sita yeah so and then he therefore became angry moving his eyebrows <laughs> and thus frightening the ocean so all it took for him to frighten the ocean was to move his eyebrows yeah then submits to him and um and there are two prayers uh i won't be able to find so quickly now but Uh, there are two prayers of the ocean uh to lord rama oh here they are uh verses 14 and 15 oh okay our prayers by the ocean to the lord it's interesting that the ramayan describes that first lord ram tried the peaceful way uh and he actually performed austerities to appease the uh god of the ocean samudra dev and samudra dev didn't do it, listen and then lord ram got got enraged and it's described that all the aquatics that, that this huge wave started blowing in the ocean the aquatics started getting burnt the ocean uh, starts boiling <laughs> yeah they fasted for 3 days You want to go to Sanskrit, Maharaj? Should we read the English? 
Um, where are we? Verse, verse 14. 13, 14, 13, yeah, 13 is a description that he, he became fearful. Oh, right. Okay, uh, 14, let's just do the English. Yeah. Oh, all-pervading Supreme Person, we are dull-minded and did not understand who you are. But now we understand that you are the Supreme Person, the master of the entire universe, the unchanging and original personality of Godhead. The demigods are infatuated with the mode of goodness, the prajapatis with the mode of passion, and the Lord of ghosts with the mode of ignorance, but you are the master of all these qualities. And then the next verse, he, he makes the point, uh, the practical point. My Lord, you may use my water as you like. Indeed, you may cross it and go to the abode of Ravana, who is the great source of disturbance and crying for the three worlds. He is the son of Vishrava, but is condemned like urine. Please go kill him and thus regain your wife, Sita Devi. O great hero, although my water presents no impediment to your going to Lanka, please construct a bridge over it to spread your transcendental fame. Upon seeing this wonderfully uncommon deed of your lordship, all the great heroes and kings in the future will glorify you. So the verse is it's saying, yes, please do it. And then it's going on to, in effect, describe what's going to happen in the future. He is going to build this bridge and this setu, and then he's going to kill Ravana. So it's an anticipation, but again, uh, Maharaj Prikshit already knows the story. Yeah. And we also all already know the story. And as you said, you know it since childhood. But hearing it again and again and again is always enlivening. Why is that? Why is it that uh, Krishna Leela works in that way? I read an article um, by a scholar who attended the Ram Leela performance um, in Ram Nagar, just across the Ganga from Varanasi. And uh, she attended the entire one month performance and she describes it in quite some detail, uh, what a, uh, the, the whole atmosphere, how everything goes on. And uh, she's describing the, the mood of the audience. And she mentions that 
many of the audience, well, everyone in the audience already knows the whole story. They are um, performing not Valmiki Ramayana, but Ram Charitmanas of Tulsi Das. And she says many of the audience have practically the whole Tulsi Ramayana memorized. They already know it. (laughs) So someone in the West could say, well, I don't want to see, okay, sometimes I'll see a film more than once. I already know what's going to happen. I want to see it again. But again and again and again and again, no. There's no need for that. But somehow with Krishna Leela and Rama Leela, we want to see it again and again and again. Yeah. Also, also the uh, late 1980s television performance or television broadcast that went for more than a year in India, uh, um, directed by, I'm forgetting his name, was it Ram Sagar? Raman Sagar. Raman Sagar, yeah. Um, the, The reports are that every Sunday morning when that was broadcast, India would come to a stop Practically, it was like lockdown. <laughs> everyone, everyone just stopped and watched the Ramayana. Yes, I remember that. You know, we were so we were in a remote place at that time, and we didn't have TV. But we would go to our neighbor's place or go somewhere else. Like many yeah. of our uh, neighbors bought television just because to to watch that serial. <laughs> And some villages, again, I read, I read about this. Some villages, maybe there would be only one uh, television in the whole village. They would get an extension cord and they would bring it out uh, to the village square or whatever. Uh, and everyone would gather around. And, some, and they, they might also put a garland or garlands around the, the TV screen. <laughs> yeah. They actually do, not in the garden, they would actually have Aarti plate ready and first time Lord Ram would appear to do Aarti. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> in fact, recently, Maharaj, during the pandemic, the Indian, because it was a complete lockdown, the Indian government yeah. decided to retelecast the Ramayana. Oh. Uh, because people had to stay at home. And it seems that uh-huh. this cracked all records. I'm just looking at the stats. It seems that they had something like 4.9 billion viewing hours, 6.9 billion viewing, viewing minutes for just the four first four episodes. Achha. <laughs> and 93.3 billion, billion viewers. So uh-huh. it is it is far more than any of the popular. Uh, television shows in America or anywhere else in the world. And yeah. the amazing thing is all this is not only already broadcast, but it's already available on YouTube freely for anybody to watch. But, uh-huh. but still it was there and it is 
it's the appeal is enduring even now yeah. <laughs> yes varaj so so what is that authors uh, who is that author maharaj is this from that vasudha narayanan's book life of hinduism i remember reading something about it there also about the ramlila uh about ramlila in ramnagar yeah that article oh um that article where was it uh, i would have to look it's been okay. a while so what was um, the what was the conclusion by the way means what was the reasoning how why are people so attracted did she give a spiritual explanation or some sociological psychological explanation uh it's been so long since i read it um okay. but she she was deeply appreciating she's not oh. you know she's not a religion basher <laughs> oh okay she's appreciating that how much dedicated people are and she she points out you know some days some days it was raining um but this doesn't stop anyone everyone is coming sitting in the mud doesn't matter and also she was highlighting how uh the the audience become actually participants uh they feel themselves to be in effect uh like residents of ayodhya so that when ram in in the drama when ram leaves for the forest um they actually move they physically go on a procession and they go to a different part of ramnagar and the entire audience is going in this mood that uh we are residents of ayodhya and so in that in that mood that it's it's participation and i i would say that's her perhaps her main conclusion i'm i'm experiencing what is called abhava abhava is uh one of the 10 pramanas of classical nyaya it's the experience of the absence of something or someone just like uh lord ramachandra was experiencing the absence of sita so now we are experiencing the absence of chaitanya charan prabhu we see his chair and we see that he is not there sorry <laughs> man it had got disconnected so i just called up the person ah okay that's all right we we discussed um in your absence we discussed i was hearing i was just hearing like i heard everything you we said discussing nyaya <laughs> you mentioned about anubhav how that is the highest command no, above 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 okay i thought above is one of the 10 forms of uh of one type of pramana and it's uh the sense of absence oh okay 
It's the awareness that something is not present. That's fascinating. So, yeah. Uh, I thought of Anubhav, which is like one of. So you were not present. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I was relating this to Ram Lila because Lord Ram was feeling that Sita was not present. Yes. And there, therefore we have a drama. I want to share one, one more verse from the Bhagavatam, a famous one. Uh, this is uh, quoted in Lagu Bhagavatamrita, but it's in the Bhagavatam, it's uh, Canto uh, 11, oh. and it's spoken by Karabhajana Muni. I, th- I don't remember. I think it's, it's either Chapter 2 or Chapter 5. And here, oh, here it is, 11.534. Oh, Mahapurusha, I worship your lotus feet as the most faithful follower of religious principles. You honored the words of your respected father and went to the forest, abandoning royal splendor so opulent that the demigods desired it. In the forest, you chased after the illusory deer desired by your beloved consort. And commentators explain, uh, this is elaborated in the purport, that this same verse can be applied to or uh, can be taken as describing uh, also Lord Krishna's pastimes and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's pastimes. Yes. So it has a triple a triple meaning depending how you take the words. Um, but uh, we may say the uh, initial understanding is that it's referring to Lord Rama. Uh, and in uh, this short commentary of Gopi Paranadana Prabhu in the Lagu Bhagavatamrita, it says. This verse can alternately alternatively be taken as Karabhajana's description of the Lord rather than an homage directed to him, in which case the word Dharmishta, or virtuous one, is directed to Nimi Maharaj. So it's just he's pointing out it can be taken either as a description or as praising, as addressing the Lord. Oh, okay. Anyway, that's um, 
That's a nice verse uh, for one reason because the next verse um, is about Lord Chaitanya. Is about Lord Chaitanya, yeah, specifically. Yeah. Okay, I am finished with the verses I wanted to quote. Now you wanted to discuss. Thank you, Maharaj. It's a beautiful thing, a scriptural, as we said, a lot of scriptural verses, but this is a very good. Uh, Meditation on how meditation on how Lord Ram has been appreciated in different portions of Scripture by different uh, different teachers in our tradition or by acharyas in our tradition. So, you know, one of the things which uh, I have been working on with respect to the Ramayana is you know, when I grew up, it was we learned more uh, human values than devotional values from the Ramayana. Human values means that uh, how Ram, how yeah, the younger brother should obey the uh, uh, older brother, the children should obey their parents, the wife should follow their husbands, how we should honor our work. So of course, we're all Ram-centric and we understood that Ram was God. But uh, that rigid differentiation between, say, what we might call as mundane lessons and spiritual lessons was not there. It is all a part of organic, organic teaching. So in terms of what was uplifting us. And there is uh, some, one of the most prom- prominent Christian missionaries who came to India. And in fact, in, in the, the Gita press, in their English translation of Tulsi Ramayana, Tulsi Ramcharitmanas, they quote this missionary and they say that uh, if any Westerner wants to understand the Indian mind, this is one book they absolutely need to read. Because no other book has had a greater influence on the Indian mind than, than Ramayana. <laughs> so, okay. so, so the point I was thinking of is that the Ramayana itself uh, starts with this question. Uh, what, what are the characteristics of an ideal person? So, and is there an ideal person like that? In fact, that's, that's the discussion which Valmiki has with uh, Narad Muni. And then Narabhani yeah. describes Ram to him. And then he gives yeah. him the inspiration and through, through a circumstance, happenstance or say, divine arrangement, he gets the meter in which Ramayana is eventually composed. So, yeah. Uh, this question I have been pondering on that uh, when I, I wrote a book on the Ramayana or wisdom from Ramayana and life and relationships. So Yes, you are quite a writer. <laughs> no, I'm doing some small writing. So it was. Uh, so there was. It was reviewed in a few places in in Times of India and Financial Express and others. So they were uh-huh. both. They were. Uh, they were appreciative as well as critical. One thing was uh, some of the one of the authors who reviewed it said that there are, I don't think the Ramayana has been explained ever in this way in terms of how it can help us to improve our relationships. I brought some. Uh, some analysis and insights about how misunderstandings occur, say, between Sugriva and Wali. And so in that sense, they were appreciative. But what they were critical of mm. was that so all the ans- all this relationship problem solutions in this book culminate in bhakti. So if you are not interested <laughs> in that, you may not find this book very appealing. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like bhakti, you won't like this. Well... <laughs> What can you say? Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I told Giraj Maharaj, 
that criticism is the perfection is it <laughs> yeah that's actually you can take it as a compliment <laughs> so um i would like uh, to disc- if if i like to discuss this topic of you know in what way is ram a perfect human being and then maybe you can share some thoughts so <clears throat> the now in some ways what is the ideal person there may be some cultural specific ideas of an ideal but still mm-hmm. there are even in the age of moral relativism also still there are certain values that are always appreciated and i'll say if one value could be selflessness or sacrifice putting the other person up mm-hmm. before oneself and doing something for others so so my understanding is that while rod ram exhibits many virtues that one virtue that permeates the whole epic is this virtue of uh, of selflessness of a mood of sacrifice so it is to honor mm-hmm. his father's word that he goes goes to a, goes to the forest and it is to uh, it is to honor his word to his wife that dashrath allows his son to go to the forest although that was worse than death for him then lakshman also has no obligation to go sita also in one sense, sita is in a sense obliged she is wife but even then rama has to rama actually tells her don't go to the, don't come with me to the forest you stay under the protection of bharat and she has to insist even up to the point of challenging ram's masculinity in shri ram ram sorry that's a very interesting exchange that happens there yeah it's a, it's <laughs> kind a, of a sorry kind of a man are you so <laughs> uh, hmm. so she so then ram revealed her idea i would love to have you come with me but i didn't want to impose this on you so then she sacrifices and lakshman has no reason to go so then uh now when lakshman goes his wife doesn't go with him she says i'll also come with you he says no if you come with me i'll have to take care of you but i am going there only to serve sita and ram and then the later tradition says that he she says no, no, you won't have to serve me i'll assist you in serving them so he does it he he realizes that she will not listen like this that he says that you can assist me in another important way he says right now i have two duties one duty to my older brother and the other duty to my parents and when both of them are in the same place i could do both duties simultaneously but now when they are separated i can't do both duties so you stay here and on my behalf you serve my parents and that is the yes. best way you can assist me so it's a yeah it's all a very moving uh, and inspiring uh, narrative and then of course completely voluntary is bharat sacrifice he has the, he has the kingdom dropped mm. in his lap we could say without doing anything on his own and yet he doesn't accept that he accept the responsibility without the without the facility without any comforts it's said that he lives in a forest and he performs actually more austerities than ram also because he oh he says that it's like he eats barley cooked in cow urine for the entire exile as a ram in the forest mm. he gets a variety of fruits and other things so yeah. that mm. mode of selflessness that is there 
So the way I analyzed it, in because one of the most troubling pastimes is what I said is of Sita being exiled. So I, so what, the way I analyzed in my book was that Sita's being sent away is actually this culmination of the mood of sacrifice. Just as Ram was not at fault when Ram was sent to the forest. So I compared Ram's being sent to the forest by Dashrath with Sita's being sent to the forest by Ram. So, oh, at the end. At the end, yeah. Okay. At the end, because that is uh, that causes a lot of heartburn. That uh, in and that is not often heartburn, most- not heartburn, heartache. Heart heartburn is something else. <laughs> no, no, no. They're two different things. Ha- I understand what you say for devotees. Right. Ha- no, no. For devotees, there is heartache. No. Yeah. What is anyway? It's no, a any, okay. <laughs> now, what I meant is that a lot of people feel angry and resentful because of how could Ram deal with his own wife like that, and how could a person who deals with somebody like that, yeah, uh, even be considered God? So, yeah. so in that sense, I was talking from that perspective. The devotional perspective is heartache. Okay, so it causes a lot of uh, there is a lot of questions. Let's put it at that. I just so yeah. So the way I tried to explain it was that it is the same mood of sacrifice attaining its culmination. The point is not that Sita was at fault. That just as Ram was not at fault. Now, just as Dashrath didn't want Ram to go away, but he was obliged. Similarly, Ram didn't want Sita to go away, but he was circumstantially obliged. Yeah. So, and that yeah, it's it a is nice parallel. Yeah. From otherwise, you know, why would a book which is purporting to say it is going to describe ideal human being describe that very human being abandoning his wife when she is pregnant? That is something which a normal human being would also not do. How would that person be considered ideal? So it's when we bring in this mood yeah. of sacrifice. That is the time when his wife needed him the most, and his natural, yeah. natural, you could say. His natural inclination or natural chivalry to protect her, he sacrificed even that for the sake of his kingdom. Not even just for the sake of his kingdom, but rather, not that he was possessive about the kingdom, but for the sake of maintaining a maintaining citizens on the path of dharma. So by mm-hmm. by having that, so that was a that is one way one frame of looking at the Ramayana of how various characters in the Ramayana they strive for. For ideal behavior, and all of them, some of them go a long way, some of them fall fall before a long way, and some of them go in the opposite directions. So, any thoughts on this, Maharaj? Uh, yes, that's nice. Um, I would just also say that taking this. question this issue of the ideal person. It seems to me that one of the messages of the Ramayana is that no matter how ideal you are, um, you know, even Rama is put into situations where he cannot possibly fulfill his dharma in all spheres. 
So taking the taking the point of banishing his wife at the end, he actually has two dharmas. One is to his wife, his family, and the other is to the to the public yeah. as as the king, as the kshatriya. And the the situation is is either or. It's one or the other, and he chooses the uh, the dharma of of king over the dharma of husband. Yes, he chooses the larger good. And a similar situation is when he is banished by his father. Um, he he is banished. <clears throat> In that case, he's accepting uh, the the dharma of obedience to the father over the dharma of being king. So there's, you made a nice parallel, and I guess what I'm saying here is two things. There's also an inversion, and the inversion is there. It highlights that there's, uh, conflicting dharmas, yes. which which raises the question, and this is, uh, I think it's um, even more so in the Mahabharata. It's been said the whole Mahabharata is uh, trying to answer the question, what is dharma? Yes. And the only sort of definite answer that's given is uh, by Lord Krishna, Sarva Dharma and Parityaja. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that part, okay. Uh, the, that is the only definite answer. I know at the end, the narration of Mahabharata also depicts, still they are perplexed, what is Dharma? So, it is a search for Dharma. And uh, the Mahabharata also has that same verse in the Bhagavatam, has that Mahajano in the Katasapanta. That. You yeah. learn that dharma from the Mahajanas. Yeah. So. <clears throat> but, but there's something else going on here. And that is that um, on the one side, we say dharma is difficult to ascertain. Mm. But on the other side, we see that at least on the, on the level of social interaction, which is where you know, we are generally concerned about dharma, that it's actually impossible to do everything that is expected. It's not, no, and this is what the Ramayana is saying. Even if you're a god yourself, (laughs) even if you're so perfect that you are god, you're not going to be able to follow all the dharmas uh, there's going to be some conflict. And then you have to make a choice. Then you have to make a choice. And as you make a choice, uh, someone is not going to be happy. The The residents of Ayodhya were very, uh, you know, very sad when Rama left for the forest. And we are all sad when Krishna banishes Sorry, when Rama banishes 
Sita to the forest. Yeah. So now there's an interesting. I don't know. There, there's an interesting uh, episode, kind of in the middle of the Ramayana. Uh, which may illuminate this, or it may just complicate things. Okay. But it's the, the famous story of Lord Rama killing Vali. Yes. And as you know, um, that's described in the, in the Valmiki Ramayana. As Vali is dying, he's accusing Rama of having completely departed from Dharma. Mm. And then Rama refutes, he, he defends himself. Now a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, later commentators and uh, modern express that they feel that his arguments were not convincing, that Rama's arguments are, they say, oh, they are disorganized, they are not very convincing. One of the arguments is, you're just an animal, and I am hunting, and a hunter doesn't have to, you know, doesn't have to walk in front of his prey uh, to say, now I'm going to fight and kill you. (laughs) That's an interesting argument considering that uh, Vali is speaking to him. So what kind of animal is this? But there's an an interesting um, point that's made by one of the main commentators uh, named Govindaraj. I think he may be a Sri Vaishnava, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so Govindaraj gives the explanation that if Rama had presented himself before Bali, there was a danger that Vali would surrender. (laughs) And you may say, well, what's wrong with that? That's great if he surrenders. But Govindaraj makes the point that if he would surrender, that would spoil the rest of the story. There would be no longer reason uh, for... Uh, for Rama to go to Lanka to save Sita and kill Ravana because it would have all been accomplished in a different way. Um, I'm not quite sure I get all the connections, but that's the argument apparently he makes. So then you get this very interesting inversion again where the reason for acting as he does, as Ram does, is so that Bali will not surrender to him. <laughs> but of course, 
Of course, as he's dying, then he does surrender to it. Yeah, that's true. And there's a a nice passage. Uh, Let's see if I can find that. Go ahead. While you're speaking, I will try to find. Yeah, that is, there are a couple, a few incidents in the Ramayana which are quite troubling with respect to their ethical implications. And this is probably the second or the third among them, Wali's killing. Now, among the various arguments, what I find is not all of them are equally strong, but not, not that all of them are weak. One of the strongest arguments he uses is that basically you are an aggressor. Now you have taken your younger brother's wife and you have driven your brother away. And uh, you never gave him a chance. So cohabiting with your younger younger brother's wife is like cohabiting with one's daughter. And for that sin, Ram says that I am still acting on behalf of I am the protector of the king, uh, protector of the world. I am a servant of Bharat, and I have to maintain yeah. law and order in society. So, right. so that is a reasonable and if you consider from the perspective of Atataina, that both aggressors can be killed without any uh, without any sin being incurred. So, so that is uh, so the way. And now regarding Govindra's explanation, I also had heard that I'd forgotten it recently. But it's striking. So what he seems to also say is that Ram has already promised uh, Sugriva to Sugriva that Sugriva you will become the king. So then, if Wali surrenders, then how will his promise to Sugri be fulfilled and right. he'll become the king, king of Kishkinda. And another thing is that, uh, yeah, so those, when I wrote on this topic, what I wrote is that we may not find the argument so convincing, but you no, know, the, the significant factor that Wali found it convincing. And Wali actually, it was not just like a reluctant surrender of a defeated person. Wali yeah. actually very movingly he reconciles with everyone. He tells uh, his son to hold no grudge, Angad to hold no grudges against Sugriva. He says, Sugriva didn't cause my death. It is my own action which caused my death. He tells Sugriva yes, and sir. his wife Tara to stay under the shelter of tells, sorry, Angad and Tara to stay under the shelter of Sugriva. And then they describe the Ramayana that the reason why Ram's arrow, Ram is known as Amogasharam. His arrows never missed their mark. So the reason why that the arrow didn't kill him immediately was because he was the son of Indra and Indra had given him a necklace. That necklace yes. would, would ensure that the person wearing it would live no matter how wounded they were. So now he could have very easily given that necklace to his own son, naturally. But he gave it to Sugriv. So that means he wanted to make amends over there. So, 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 in a sense, if say, there is a case, there are the case between say, if say, sometimes there's a, some argument between the husband and the wife, and then they patch up, but some third party comes and says, "Hey, no, 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 this is unfair," and they are actually making things worse among them, <laughs> and they have patched it up. So, <laughs> in this case, Ram and Wali, Wali accepts Ram's arguments, and Wali, it's not a reluctant; it's a wholehearted surrender and transformation. So in that sense, yeah. uh, it's um, that, I, that is the most reasonable explanation I came to. You no, wanted to that's read a nice point too. I just thought we can read um, Bali's response to 
to Lord Rama. I found it. This is Kishkinda, Kishkinda Kanda Sarga 18, starting verse 42. This is the critical edition translation um, by um, this fourth volume is translated by Professor Rosalind Lefebvre. Um, so he's, Bali says, <clears throat> please do not find fault with me even for the unseemly displeasing words I spoke before by mistake, Raghava. For you understand worldly interests and know the truth and you are devoted to the well-being of the people. Your immutable judgment about determining crime and punishment is correct. You know righteousness, therefore with righteous words, and righteousness is of course translating the word dharma, therefore with righteous words comfort even me, known to be a flagrant violator of, of righteousness, dharma. Like an elephant mired in mud, Bali cried out in distress, his voice choked with tears. Then looking at Rama, he said softly, I do not grieve as much for myself or Tara or even my kinsmen as I do for my eminently virtuous son, Angada, of the golden armbands. Then he goes on to uh, express his concern for his son and his son's future and so on. So, mm, yeah, there is this change in heart, uh, we can say, on the part of uh, Bali. <clears throat> As he lies dying, there is a change in heart. And this we might compare... It just occurs to me, I'm thinking aloud, uh, to uh, the death of Jatayu. <laughs> I don't know. This may be a stretch, but Jatayu, of course, is uh, fighting for Lord Rama when he's fighting Ravana, and R Ravana overcomes him, and he lays, he's lying there dying. And Lord Rama comes. Um, we can say it's not a change of heart, but it's it's his perfection now because Rama is present before him as he's leaving his body. It's a very touching moment uh, in which the yeah, there's a perfection there. Whether it's Rama's perfection. I would say it's Jatayu's perfection uh, just to have given his life uh, for Rama and Sita. And there's a similar perfection, of course, for uh, Bali in that he is dying at the hands of Rama, we understand. But sort of putting aside the the bhakti element and the understanding that if you're killed by the Lord, you're liberated. Uh, still, he has had a transformation. Uh, 
he's had a change of heart, uh, which kind of invites us to see the bhakti principle. So I find it difficult to understand the critics that you mentioned who are saying, well, if you don't like bhakti, then you may not appreciate this, this book uh, because the, <laughs> the Ramayana, I mean, what is it if it's not about bhakti, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, okay, what happened? Let me clarify that. Actually, my, my uh, publisher chose to position the book as a self-help book based on the Ramayana. So, right. so then they felt that self-help should not all culminate in bhakti. So that was their <laughs> mood. But then, yeah, I agree with you. How can you talk about that? Uh, ultimately, the Ramayana is about bhakti. So of it's course, the I'm not only, just... It's the only self-help there is. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautifully put, yeah. The only real self-help is to find the supreme self. <laughs> That is true, Maharaj. Beautifully put. So, uh, so, although in one sense, Ravan Bwali was killed by Ram and uh, Jatayu was killed on behalf of Ram. Hmm? We are saying both attain the same destination uh, ultimately. You know, that... Uh, well. that was that the parallel you're making? I, I'm speaking more not about destination so much as about the dramatic moment. They're both before Rama as they are dying. Oh. And, and that moment, it, it's a very powerful moment in both cases. Dramatically speaking, it's a very, you know, special, it's... it's uh, yeah, it's a perfection. Whatever the perfection may be, we understand it's, you know, moksha, etc. It's back home, back to Godhead, and so on. But uh, just from the, from the point of view of the drama and the issue of perfection, being a perfect person uh, in this world, we can see that those moments in both cases are uh, are themselves a kind of perfection, a kind of, yeah, clim certainly climactic moments. But you just pointed out there's a delay uh, in the death of, of Bali or Valin, he's sometimes. Yeah. And I happen to have... I wanted to share an interesting detail because we we were mentioning before that there's so many versions of the, the Ramayana um, mm -hmm. in different parts of the world, uh, which are making assorted adjustments to the story, we may say, which resonate with particular cultures. Uh, and so the Ramayana is very well known in Indonesia, all over Southeast Asia. Um, it's also known, excuse me, in China, 
uh, within another story, uh, another famous work. It's known in Japan, and recently uh, it's been made into uh, an animated film in Japan. Uh, there's also uh, an American animation which was done oh what is her name i'm not remembering now but she uh it, she did a an animation called sita sings the blues oh i remember sita sings the blues yeah you can find it on youtube i think uh and anyway that's a very different version it's it's a kind of, uh, uh, you can say, a, a feminist version, sort of taking Sita Devi's perspective. But here is something from a book called Ramayana in the Arts of Asia. It's a kind of uh, big picture book. And oh. it's describing different famous episodes from different traditions. So one section is the Battle of the Brothers. And first it gives a summary of the Valmiki, Valmiki Ramayana account. And then it gives a short account from Khmer, which I guess is Cambodia. Mm -hmm. uh, the Rayamker or Ramakerti, it's called. And here it's translated as Rama shoots his arrow at Vali, who catches it and sees his name on it. He sees his name on the arrow. He places that arrow on his head in respect. He's respecting the arrow because it's coming from Rama. But he accuses Rama of improper behavior for interfering in the fight of others since he should protect living creatures. Rama offers to recall the arrow. But Bali refuses because he will not plead for his life. He releases his grip on the arrow and the arrow pierces his body flies to the sea for cleansing and returns to Rama. <laughs> That's amazing. And then so, it goes on. Tara uh, falls in grief at the feet of Vali's body and laments. This is divine retribution for some wrong you committed long ago. The ground is now your royal couch. Actually, this is in Valmiki Ramayana, close, uh, with a forested hill for a pillow and the star-strewn sky as a canopy. The wind is your music, the moon your torch. And then Indra descends. You mentioned Indra. Mm -hmm. Descends from heaven and sprinkles perfumed water on Bali, granting him passage to paradise, Holy men in the forest recite from the sacred texts for his entrance into nirvana, the state of absolute bliss and freedom from pain. 
So I guess this is, uh, you know, some Buddhist uh, influence or elements are there. Uh, he, he attains nirvana. <laughs> yeah. So this is interesting. Now, one of the most, uh, when first time I read it, thank you for sharing all these. I knew that there were variants or other retellings with different degrees of, uh, of uh, harmony with the original in different parts of the world. But I didn't know there was like one book where all of them are available or many of them are available. It's not many. It's a handful. Okay. Um, yeah. We have one scholar, by the way, in Oxford uh, who uh, is retired now. And he has been, most of his academic life, he's been studying the Ramayana. And now he's continuing to study the Ramayana. Uh, he and his wife both. Uh, in particular, they are cataloging the different versions of Ramayana from different parts of the world. So it's uh, it's it's a years-long project that they're working on. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is John Brockington and his wife, Mary. Very nice people. So anyway, uh, yeah, different versions. And speaking of different versions, I want to a little bit advertise because I found it just so nicely done. There is a three-volume rewriting, you can say, a, a creative uh, presentation of the Ramayana done by Vrinda Devi, uh, Vrinda in America, and her mother, um, Annapurna, is the illustrator. Uh, beautiful illustrations and amazingly nicely written with an emphasis, again, on uh, the perspective of Sita. Um, but very tastefully done and I would say very uh, well, uh, you can say venturing into the inner life of, of the personalities of Sita, of Rama, of Lakshman, how Lakshman feels as he is with Sita and Rama, some of the awkwardness of being with Sita and Rama, you know, over many months and years and a lot of very amazing insights, I would say. Oh, okay. It's, called, it's a trilogy called Sita's Fire. Yeah, I've heard about it. I've not yet read it till now. Other devotees also told me about it. I found also... Krishna Dharma Prabhu's Ramayana rendition very beautiful. Mm. In fact, uh, as compared to, it's this brings us a bigger bigger question, Mara. That you know, say there are the Gita Press has tried to accurately translate into English, but it seems that to translate into a particular language, if somebody for them to be really good in that language, 
it's not just like the linguistic expertise but there's a natural flow so it's one thing is like linguistic expertise other thing is writing ability so that joy yes. of reading uh, reading a well written text that doesn't come just because a text is well translated in terms of accuracy and fidelity so yeah it's a it's a dynamic thing yes Now, a good translation a good translation of any um major text becomes itself a classic uh in the western world the, the i think best example of this is uh what's called the king james version of the bible uh this was a translation done in i guess the 16th or 17th century mm. and it became it became it became the core of english literature it became hugely influential uh, the style and everything about it and it continues you can say to have it influence although now there are so many later translations but none of them compare in uh sort of the use of language uh, the beauty of the translation i think many would say so yeah that is there um as far as translation of ramayana goes i suppose time will tell as far as english translation we do now have this uh seven volume translation of the critical edition yes uh with uh it has also extensive notes which i think is interesting it includes um many points that are made by the main commentators in the notes so it's not neglecting the the sort of classical commentators oh okay that's interesting because i don't think the mahabharat critical edition was like that of course mahabharat doesn't have that many commentators also it is so big to be commented on mm. yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> So going back to your point, Maharaj, just one or two uh, concluding points I wanted to make. I yes. was listening to this various retellings. Yes. Uh, there is one of the most provocative retellings I read was what is called the Jain Ramayana, and it has more or less a similar uh-huh. storyline, but with some differences. Uh, but the key thing is, throughout while going in the forest, uh, Ram meets Jain sadhus, Achha. and at the end of it. <laughs> when sita enters into the earth their rendition is ram becomes enlightened and becomes a jain ah. so <laughs> <laughs> of course he has to become a jain <laughs> so it's a it's a good example of a i think the term is cultural appropriation yeah and so is is it known roughly when that um Jain version appeared. It's a good question. I never thought about historically. Again, okay. So, 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 but then Jain Ramayana never became accepted as a mainstream in India. Hmm? Yeah. So there is this thought I had that 
like you talked earlier about different retellings there is the kalpabheda that is there and the lord's past and unlimited at the same time in unless unlimited it's not unlimitedly stretchable so there are some retellings which just go against uh, the against the core storyline or the core mood of the epic so i have been thinking about uh, about this topic and uh, i thought of a metaphor i think it's based on something i had read elsewhere that is like a it's like a ramayana is not just a book it's not a, it's a living text it's a, like a performance so the valmiki ramayana is like the original singer or musician and all the other retellings are like people who are joining in the orchestra and to the extent those who join in the orchestra harmonize and enhance the singing of the core singer to the extent they are welcomed and embraced but if anybody starts singing disharmoniously then they are left out so in that those <laughs> those retellings which say enhance the flavor of bhakti to ram while of course adding their own their own flavors while adding their own nuances enhancements but as long as they enhance the flavor uh, they become accepted and otherwise they are rejected so now how do we know that something enhances the flavor broadly i thought of two things one is that it it shouldn't at the very least it shouldn't contradict the direct storyline of the valmiki ramayana and it shouldn't directly it shouldn't contradict the the uh, not just the philosophy philosophy is one aspect but the like the rasa the mood of the ramayana now of course whether these are like absolute criteria and who is going to judge whether the mood is being contradicted that opens a pandora's box but in general hinduism was never a very organized religion which could like legislate that this is this is authorized and this is rejected so yeah but why i it's not that just because there are many retellings of the ramayana doesn't mean that there is no core to it or there is no soul to it there is a very vibrant soul which has affected and animated all the ramayans and if that if that soul were not there then none of the other ramayans would have any appeal because one danger in yeah. saying that because i think that was one of the reasons why one of the authors who wrote an article another scholars who wrote an article about how there are so many ramayans now he he received a lot of flack from some some hindu community leaders because at least yes. the state was constituted the public yeah they came the hot issue uh, a few years back in, yeah i remember in delhi yeah now one of the main reasons why that happened in my understanding was that the implication that was uh, brought out from his work whether he intended it or not was that that you know, because there is no because there are so many readings of ramayana nothing is uh, none of them are really authentic so that was the problem because otherwise there are so many retellings which have survived and uh, i don't think anyone has uh, militantly opposed any retelling mm. just because it differs from the valmiki ramayana yes but okay that gets into a, <laughs> it gets into the hot 
hot political sphere. But I, I would argue that even if that's the case, that uh, he was, that the sort of bottom line of his article was that there's no uh, authorized Ramayan. That in itself is not uh, an argument for removing removing his article uh, from the syllabus. Even if everyone wants to disagree with what he says, let everyone read what he says, and then you can argue against what he says. That's education. Not that you control, um, you know, you ban the article, people shouldn't read this, it's going to disturb them. No, make it have, if it's going to disturb, then you should have strong arguments against it, but everyone should be able to read it and get both sides. That's an interesting perspective. If I may well, come to it, if I may put that idea, but it's, it's, if we're talking about intellectual culture, which I think is what we're trying to do in the university level, then uh, you present you present your arguments. You say, okay, here's a purvapaksha. In effect, what this ban of that article was doing uh, was saying, we're going to remove the purvapaksha and we're only going to have our siddhanta. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand that. That's yeah, how I, I see it. <laughs> in, prin no, in principle, I agree that uh, banning anything in today's world just doesn't work. Is what is that? I don't think anything that is forbidden actually becomes more fascinating. Yeah, so this makes it more attractive. Yeah. <clears throat> so, 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 but the point is that the concern in uh, in uh, in the traditional Hindu circles is. Not that they don't have that. There is, there is only the Puropaksha in the mainstream academia. Most of the not there are hardly any traditional scholars who have any standing. So mm. it is mostly so that, it's like more and more left, yeah more and more extreme or dis, what from the traditional perspective questionable or leftist interpretations are being given. And it yeah. just goes from one limit to another limit to another limit. And then ultimately there will be no limit. So that is where the but, concern was. There was one of yeah. the scholars who critiqued that. Now, he had done a very good uh, uh, comparison of at that time, you know, before Wikipedia came, Encarta Dictionary. Uh, Encarta, en Encarta Encyclopedia was quite a good resource. So he did a comparison of how uh, Islam was treated in Encarta Encyclopedia and how Hinduism was treated. So he said that if there are some, there are some points which don't make sense. They were right for Islam that uh, you know, there is the there is the principle of incomplex of of something like uh, inconceivability or to the to the will of Allah because of which things can't be understood. And exactly similar point in Hinduism. So Hindu philosophy is riddled with incoherence and with incoherence and contradictions that mm -hmm. that that make it untenable for the modern logical mind to accept. 
so right. it was so throughout the bias could be seen so i think that no, ban no, no, that burning and that that particular ban, that particular protest was like a pressure cooker ex- giving out a whistle yeah after a long time of uh, opposition something just burst out i agree it yeah. actually did more damage than good because it only painted those who were opposing as right wing extremists and removed uh, what do you say it overshadowed whatever due concerns they had and painted them into and made them into a corner and furthermore i think it just proves uh, another point uh, as you said there's no representation of the tradition uh in the academy and this is one of the uh unfortunate results of the fact that in india um except for a few private universities there is no um departments for the study of religion yes and therefore there's no um there's no there are no channels for people who are interested in religion to become qualified academically so that they can you know bring bring a balanced argument which can be taken seriously uh the the traditional scholars um are kind of you know they they live within a certain um a certain kind of world of presuppositions which modern scholarship doesn't know how to re- they don't relate to so how are they going to interact to to simply ban something is not really solving the problem yes that's true so this is i think uh, therefore mm-hmm. we are starting with govardhanika village you know yeah. you're right there uh, yeah. we have uh, bhaktivedanta research center which now has affiliation with university of mumbai uh and we now have a few post uh postgraduate students who are preparing they're getting training by devotees in scholarship uh on the level of masters and uh doctoral research yes i had a podcast with gorangpur also about drc i think that is one of the most intellectually promising projects we have and once and once since in india we have reached out to a lot of intelligent young people through our college outreach mm? yeah at the, uh, at the same time uh, if they become devotees many of them become brahmacharis afterward they don't know how to engage their intelligence adequately because not right. all of them may want to become become recruiters preach preachers in the sense of recruiters so what right. more can they do yeah yes maharaj <clears throat> so, so it does seem that uh so if i understand and that's varnashram dharma that's varnashram dharma facilitating the brahmins 
to do what Brahmins can do well, uh, which is uh, research, teaching, education. So they should be able, they should be facilitated to, to do that in the modern context. Okay. That's what that's what the idea is. Mm-hmm. I believe you are also one of the guides over there, isn't it, Maharaj? For the BRC. Well, I I just I just gave uh, I just taught one <clears throat> one module um, on research skills, and uh, we just completed that. I still have to mark all of the assignments. For this, oh, okay. yeah, I think they send me the links to the videos. Some of the students I know them quite well, so I look at uh, quite a quite a rigorous process researching for academic publications. It's a uh, yeah, mm, yes, Maharaj. So yeah, so we want to get the we want to get the students up to speed um, because unless they can. Um, you know, follow these kind of standards of the academy. Uh, they won't be able to. They won't be able to publish. They won't be able to get positions where they can teach. All of these things. There are skills that are required, um, like for any any uh, specialty. So, we're trying to. We're trying to train up. Uh, students to have these skills. So now that was that. That's one last question. I won't take too much. So you mentioned about within the academic. Rama. Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Coming back to Rama only, but uh, about Ramayan. See, from a traditional perspective, when I mentioned that, and say there was no centralized uh, system for authorizing or rejecting. Uh, but uh, uh, how would you consider from a devotee perspective that uh, whether the acad- now the academy might go into a too much of a critical or deconstructionist mode? But as devotees, we also understand that Krishna Leela is uh, for, for, from our perspective. Say Krishna, we focus on Krishna more than Ram. Krishna Leela is uh, unlimited, and when we go to Vrindavan and we hear from. Some of the local Rajwasis, or say Dinamandu Prabhu tells some stories which he has heard from local Rajwasis. They add to the flavor of what we know about Krishna. So, mm-hmm. do you know whether in our tradition, whether any any criteria have been uh, given for determining which stories of Krishna can be accepted and which can't be accepted? There is Bhakti Samasam <laughs> talks about that Shastra Praman and Loka Praman. And many of yeah. these stories would fall in Loka Praman. But then yeah. Loka Praman becomes in a which Praman of which Lokas? That raises a question also. Yeah. Well, and uh, I think it's always going to be blurry boundaries. I like um, that. Blurry boundaries, okay. Porous boundaries because, and I think that is also one of the strengths. Um, who is... Who is patrolling the boundaries, we may say. And I would say that is where the uh, gurus and the sadhus function. So you you mentioned uh, 
our dear Dinabandhu Prabhu mm. telling, uh, sharing much of the loka, uh, lokika kata. So he makes a choice that here is a story which will enrich the devotees. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell it. We we all respect him as as a, as a sadhu, as a very good follower of our Acharya, Srila Prabhupada. And I would just, I don't know if he does this all the time. I don't think he does all the time. But best would be if when he or someone else is narrating such a story that he's saying, that he's uh, kind of announcing, this is a local tradition. This is what the villagers say. Mm -hmm. So that the next person who hears it doesn't then, he may share the same story, but he or she will also make clear, this is local uh, kata, local tradition. According to, you know, the Bhagavatam, this and this and this, local tradition says that. Uh, The local tradition, we share it perhaps because it enriches our appreciation of Krishna. It also enriches our appreciation of uh, local, of Rijbhat, excuse me, Rijbhasis. Yeah. you know, they they also are to be respected. We understand they're not ordinary, and so um, they can be respected. Um, but I think the the boundary patrol is always going to be essentially guru and sadhu. Sadhu, shastra, guru, vakya, hridaye, kuriya, aikya. Yes, that's true. So, with respect to like this small, I don't, I don't want to use the word disclaimer for it. That is a local tradition, but it just a uh, maybe just a note can be there. So, just one point that raised man, even what to speak of telling other stories. You know, even when we tell stories of Krishna, uh, there is a certain amount of creativity involved in it. If you are going to make a drama, yeah. we can't uh, just yeah. literally take a, the whole dialogue from the scriptures. We have to we add a little bit more, uh, flesh out the characters a little bit more, add some more dialogues. Yeah. So, so um, when I wrote my book for Ramayana for the first time, I was very hesitant to put any words in the character's mouth. But then it became the whole book the whole story was in passive or passive, like uh, indirect speech. Yeah. So then it became very, very dead kind of story. The, the story aspect of the story was gone. It was like a, not a story, but a report of the story. So, uh-huh. so then I started using the direct speech over there. And of course, I don't like put words in the character's mouth, obviously. But still, there is a certain amount of creative license required when we when we talk about telling the stories. Like you earlier mentioned in the in the uh, the Sita uh, Sita trilogy, 
uh, when we talk about the emotions of the the inner emotions of the characters there is a certain amount of creativity used in it and, and that, that is explained by shila rupa goswami uh, that uh, for the purpose of drama writing drama it is permitted uh, to make adjustment to shastra as long as the rasa is right mm-hmm. if you get the right rasa and i think this gets back to what you were saying about harmonizing you know if if there's essential harmony then we may ad- we may accept uh some variation so yeah. that's what that's that's what ruba goswami says explicitly um in his what is it called he wrote a textbook on on yeah. drama nata chandrika i think yes nata nata chandrika thank you yeah um it's interesting so for example harida um not haridas um um <laughs> not haridas the the famous dramatist kalidas kalidas okay <laughs> and uh, so in his shakuntala he takes from the mahabharata the story of uh, uh, maharaj dushanta <clears throat> and shakuntala and he turn he he elaborates he tells some um, he he puts a twist into the story he adds he adds the curse and so on that uh Maharaj Dushanta or Dushyanta loses his memory because of a curse. Um, In the Mahabharata, there's a very different kind of, he's actually just playing like he forgets because he needs to first uh, establish that indeed Shakuntala is his wife for the public. so his purpose there is you can say a dharmic dharmic purpose mm. um because he explains otherwise otherwise you know if i just accept you now uh people may not accept you and then it's going to be a big problem so he he keeps putting her off acting like he's forgetting acting like she's making it all up and then comes i just read this a few days ago then comes a voice from the sky <laughs> yeah saying this is your wife come on <laughs> but the point is the point is that kalidas makes it a rather different story but um i would assume that shilaruba goswami would say he keeps the rasa so it's okay Mm. so 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 even drama is not a, like a like a frozen genre even modern novelizations you could call as dramas because modern novels are not exactly plays so but still the rules we could apply here also yeah i think it's a good general general principle mm. makes sense and as as for uh embellishing 
as you said, to make a, a drama, we may want to perform in a Sunday feast program or whatever. What I have uh, encouraged devotees to do is to have minor characters uh, speak with each other in such a way that uh, they may bring in some additional, you know, points which are appropriate. And in that way, uh, you, you kind of, res you, it's a kind of safe position, I think you can make it so that uh, you're not taking, you can't be accused of taking too many liberties. Yes, that's true. I think we had a podcast discussion on this, on using our imagination Krishna service. And you had mentioned yes. this point. Yeah. So, yes, Maharaj. So we could, uh, in one sense, if you're going to talk about rasa, there is no way really emotion and ima imagination can be separated entirely. Because ultimately emotion is meant to trigger the imagination. Not in the sense of imagining up things, like imaginary things, but using our imagination yeah. to visualize the ultimate, re visualize realities. So, so yes, Nana. Um, thank you, Maharaj. Should I try to summarize? Please. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of discussion today. So we started yeah. today with a, a brief overview of pertinent prayers. So the first prayer of the Shavta Stotra where very very graphically and vividly Ram distributes Ravan's ten heads to the, as offerings to the ten directions. So we could consider it as, as poetic or we could consider it as having happened find some other kalpa. And then we discussed the Bhagavatam verse, which is offering a almost summarizing the prayer, summarizing the pastime and then offering a prayer. It made this Lord protect us. So we discussed some aspects of those that prayer also. And then uh, we discussed 11th canto, the Tektuasu Distaja verse and how it refers to Ram. And um, we discussed from the Lagovagatamrut, the commentary of it was from about that also. So then uh, we came to how is Ram an ideal person? That was the theme. And there, Two, three things was the mood of sacrifice and service, which you mentioned. And then you do this very elaborate in the parallel between, say, Ram sending Sita away and Dashrath sending Ram away. And then we talked about the, the ethical, some of the questions raised with respect to ethics, with respect to Wali's story. And uh, you mentioned how Wali is actually convinced at the end. And so that aspect of Govindaraj saying that this is... So Ram acted in such a way that Wali wouldn't surrender so that the story would go on. That's quite a beautiful, beautiful reading of it. And, and then you also mentioned about how the Ramayana has influenced so many countries and cultures where they have had different variants of the Ram, Ram Lila being depicted. And then, of course, before that, you mentioned about how Ramayana, it is an experience it is a living experience that they discussed about this, how we can keep hearing Ramayana and Ramlila and it's still relishable. And this Western scholar who went to Varanasi and went, went to Banks of Ganga and actually saw it. So everybody knows the story, but still they relish it because they're participating and experiencing it. And 
then uh, and it, it's being reenacted. Oh, sorry, reenacted. Reenacted. It's being reenacted. The sense is that it's real. It's happening again. The leela yeah. is happening again. Yes, I remembered one point which I forgot to mention there. That I had also read one author's article. I don't know whether it's the same one. He said how if Ram becomes if some character is playing as Ram, then they treat that person actually like Ram. They do the puja of that person, and if the the he might yeah. be the son of a father, but the father for that day will bow down to the son. Treating him like Ram, so in that sense, it's actually a reenactment itself. And uh, and uh, then uh, it discussed toward the end about uh, uh, various re- uh, talking about the various various retellings of the Ramayana and how what what how how far are the boundaries porous? So one theme I mentioned is about the harmonization, like a musical orchestra, and then you said that we can't really. uh ban things we discuss about that many many ramayan translations and the deconstruction that happened because of that and the solution to that is not banning the book or condemning the author but it is actually getting tradition getting the traditional perspective uh, presented in the academia and that can be done if we have more educational forums where the facilities available that's not available unfortunately much in india but the bakyan research center is one thing that is coming up that has already started up and then with for for the living tradition right now the boundaries patrolling would be by the gurus gurus and sadhus and so there is a laukik praman also which is used say for example when we hear krishna leela and uh, when so there are two different things one is considering uh, the past tense which are not given in scripture and how how to accept them or not and the other is you the past tense that are given in scripture how do we enter more into them so for that there is some amount of uh, character development which is authorized to some extent by rupaka sandhana chandrika and you also mentioned the the caution that could be taken is for dramatic purposes have uh, minor characters who speak the relevant things without having to so that we don't they're not accused of taking too many liberties and ultimately imagination and emotion the naturally related so we can't divorce the two we precise to be experienced imagination has to be stimulated and that's why we can all immerse ourselves in ram leela any any points i left out or anything you want to add maharaj uh maybe just one small point to add which um has kind of fascinated me since i read it some years back um that I think it was uh, the the t- 10th century aesthetician um Ananda Vardhana who who said that the dominant rasa of the Ramayana is karuna it's karuna rasa karuna oh, is karuna. a sense okay. it's a sense of compassion but it's also a sense of <clears throat> of pathos um in a sense the ramayana in, with within the, let's say this the valmiki ramayana he's speaking about the valmiki ramayana which is considered the 
original because Valmiki is the Adi Kavi, so this is poetry. So poetry has to express rasa. And the dominant rasa, he said, uh, is, is karana. And if you look at it from that perspective, it's very interesting to see how the, uh, the whole story of the Ramayana is actually deeply moving because yeah. of the feelings of separation, Ram from Sita, especially. So there's the hero, there's the Vira Rasa, of course. Rama is, you know, killing Ravana uh, and so on. But uh, to identify Karna as the dominant Rasa, I think is fa very fascinating and also inviting for us to understand the Valmiki Ramayana is uh, deeply nourishing to our bhakti. In other words, we don't have to think, oh, I'm just a, I'm a Krishna bhakta. I don't have anything to do with Rama. He's, he's all about Dharma and rules and regulations. That's not for me. No, it's, it's deeply about uh, it's deeply about bhakti and on on the level also uh, of viraha, but it's the particular flavor is karuna. Beautiful viraha. And so earlier you mentioned also about abhava. That is also a, a praman, absence of. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so this is beautiful. I had heard about Corona, but I didn't know it was Anand Vardhan who had said that. So then it, it, it now it gels very nicely with the Viraha Bhav. So how are Corona and Viraha, are they synonymous? Or Corona is more, the, more like in English would call it pathos. And separation is one way of feeling pathos. I'm not an expert in these things, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to speculate. Um, but I would I would understand karuna in in relation to pathos. Whether they are, you know, coextensive meaning may not be appropriate. Uh, okay. But but with karuna, of course, I think there's something additional, which is the sense of compassion. Okay, so, so who is feeling compassion for whom? Well, you can say Ram is, is uh, having compassion on all of us. He's showing compassion um, to everyone in the story in one way or another. He's showing compassion to Ravana by killing him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. That's true. I think yes, Maharaj. That's beautiful. Thank you, Maharaj, for adding that, and thank you very much for your association. This is thank very so wide-ranging discussion on the Ramlila. So, so who comes next in our series? <laughs> oh, our Aradhidev, Krishna. Oh, Krishna is counted. Okay, there's different lists of ten avatars. So oh, we're we want to go to we want to go to Balram then, of course. We can do, or who, who do you prefer? Or Balaram and Krishna. I don't know. 
or we end up, or we do 11. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think Balram and Krishna is a good idea because if you have to speak about Balram, we really can't yeah. speak much without speaking about Krishna. Exactly. And, and Krishna will become like too big in one sense to cover in one session also. So you can too focus much. on Balram yeah. and their relationship with Krishna. Exactly. That sounds good. Yes, Maharaj. Okay. I look forward to your association next month, Maharaj. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hare Krishna. 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 Hare